Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah. The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh-oh. Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. A long time ago, in a galaxy not far away, Jar Jar Binks made his Star Wars debut, and the public response was intense. The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks is a new show about how one of the most polarizing characters in cinematic history and the extreme online backlash against Ahmad Best, the actor who played him, join host Dylan Maron as he dives into one of the first ever internet hate campaigns, and what the backlash against Jar Jar can teach us about fandoms today. Find the redemption of Jar Jar Binks wherever you get your podcasts. Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for Secret Invasion Episode 2 plus Star Wars Jedi Survivor, the video game, available now. My name is Jason Concepcion. And I'm Rosie Knight. And welcome to X-Ray Vision, the Crooked Media Podcast, where we dive deep to your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In this episode, in the previously on, we're talking about the much-rumored, now-confirmed Superman and Lois casting for James Gunn's Superman legacy. In the airlock, it's Secret Invasion Episode 2, and things are still very bleak in the world of Nick Fury. In the hive mind, we are talking to Star Wars Jedi Survivor writer, Danny Homan. Wonderful. Lovely chat. And it, a nerd out comes in the form of a secret invasion theory. Uh, coming up next, previously on. Uh, first up, James Gunn has his Clark Kent and Lois. Uh, news breaking today, this morning, we're recording this on Wednesday, uh, that David Corn Sweat, Sweat of the Corn, uh, has been tapped to play the Man of Steel himself. And Rachel Brosnahan of the marvelous uh, Miss Maisel fame uh, will be Lois Lane. Yes. This was very funny. This was so heavily rumored. Boris Kitt at The Hollywood Reporter was doing these crazy studio reports and everyone was like, James Gunn said, James Gunn said, you can't believe it until he says it. And then James Gunn came out and he was like, yes, this is true. So it sounds like they were basically testing three sets of actors against each other, including Nicholas Holt, which is very interesting because he... That guy has lost every major role. So I think he's playing... I love Nicholas. But I think he's playing the long game because basically, originally, allegedly, they said they weren't testing anyone else for Lex and they wanted him to play Lex. And then Holt said, well, I want to test for Superman, I think that's quite smart. Think of Killian Murphy tested for Batman and then ended up being Scarecrow. Yeah. I think it almost like makes him more of a shoe-in for Lex, but I could never He'd see him. He's going to be a great Lex. He's going to be a great Lex. Top I hope that they still go that, right? Like, So I love this. Uh, David Corrin Sweat, he was in the Netflix show Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Big Clark Kent energy. Also was so good in Pearl. If you've seen it, the Ty West movie, he is the... He's the guy who works in the movie theater as the projectionist who she gets to do that great speech to, the, the what did I do wrong speech that everyone loves on the internet. He gets murdered horribly, spoiler alert, and he's wonderful. Uh, obviously, Braz, oh my God. I, so let's How just do you put say it out there. Brosnahan. I, for the long, I don't, I think for some reason, 
I only have a reading disability when it comes to the name Rachel Brosnahan, Same. which I in my mind it. I have always pronounced as Bro Shannon. I did Bro Hansen or something. And then I said I that out loud several years ago and just got laughed out of a room. <laughs> They're like, "What do you call her?" Uh, so yeah, I also have Rachel issues with that name. Brosnahan. Yes, I had heard that that audition just absolutely blew everyone out of the room. This kind of more Margot Kidder-esque Superman Lois Lane energy. I would love to see that. We were just talking. You got me? Yeah. Who's got you? <laughs> She's got to call him Smallville yeah. at least like five times, you know. I will be very excited to see this. I think it's intriguing. It also echoes the age difference. There was apparently a lot of conversation about whether Brosnan was too old because she's the ripe old age of 32, yeah, know. you know, oh, just put me in my grave now. Um, and Corin Sweat is 29, but that actually echoes that Margot Kidder was four years older than Christopher Reeves when they were together in that, you know, those iconic Superman movies. Also, Corin Sweat, first Jewish guy to play Superman. Love it. Love that. You know, nice Siegel and Schuster nod there. Makes a lot of sense. He's from Pennsylvania. I feel like that gives you that good farm boy. Like, you need to have that rural energy. They have not really had that very much. Depends on where he comes from in Pennsylvania, but I'm just making a, a generalization. I would like to see an American Superman again. I'm very interested. This, The reporting on this is kind of blowing my mind, though, mm -hmm. because when it was first announced, the conversation was, it's going to be a workplace origin story. It's going to be about them at the Daily Planet. But Boris Kitt, in one of his really great pieces that he wrote, talked quite extensively about this idea of there already being the, this fully formed superhero team in the authority, which if is the case would be very, very different to anything we've yeah. seen before because Superman is usually the, the original. The thing that starts it all. He is the thing yeah. that starts it all. He is, the authority is a response to Superman, yeah. you know, not the other way around. So I think this could be quite an interesting and unexpected take and maybe not what we've all kind of been expecting. I think this might be more of a throwing us into the DCU rather yeah. than a little step. And, of course, James Gunn directing from uh, his own script. Yeah. So uh, exciting. Slated for release July 11th, 2025, giving uh, David not a lot of time to hit the gym. He's probably in there right now. <laughs> he's already doing the weights. Yeah. He's, on, he's on the Marvel slash DC diet. <laughs> Up next, Secret Invasion, episode two. We're stepping out of the airlock and into the beautiful grounds of New Skrullos to talk about episode <laughs> two of Secret Invasion Promises, directed by Ali Salim, teleplayed by Brian Tucker, story by Brant Engelstein and Brian Tucker. Uh, we open on a flashback. It's years ago. Brixton, England. Tell us about Brixton. Brixton's in South London. It's great. I used to live quite near there in a place called West Norwood. It has long been like a really brilliant thriving Caribbean community. It has also been heavily gentrified in the last few years, mm -hmm. but you get to see that a little bit more, that version from the 90s. You can always get great jerk chicken there. It's very... What's the what's the venue there? Because I always see live at Brixton. Just called Brixton Academy. Ah. Classic. Actually, some quite controversial stuff going on there at the moment. They want to shut it down after some like bad management of a gig, but it's kind of like another part of the gentrification. But yeah, Brixton is great. You should go there. It's good times. If well, you're in England, and if you can go in a time machine, even better. 
Well, Fury uh, is there, and it's sometime in the 90s. He and Talos are meeting newly arrived Skrull refugees. Uh, it is at this particular uh, uh, onboarding meeting that Fury is introduced to a young Skrull named Gravik, who apparently is very smart, very resourceful, a budding warrior and pilot. Fury and Talos recruit him, soft recruit him. Soft recruit Right. To, sh- to shield, maybe, or something, uh, Talos gives a speech praising Fury as the man basically solely responsible for giving Skrull refugees uh, safe harbor. This is Carol Danvers' erasure. But then Fury then uh, mentions Carol and says, hey, listen, uh, uh, here's the deal. Carol and I are going to find you a new home. Uh, and in exchange for that, you're going to help us defend Earth from other aliens. And then he says, and I quote, you keep your word, I'll keep mine. He did not keep his word. I just need <laughs> to say that. Right. How long has it it's been? It's been 30 years. It's been 30 I mean, years. I, like, he's I'm getting not... to it. Stuff happened. He disappeared for five years when he got He founded snapped. the Avengers. The Chitari came. But like, where was this man? And couldn't he just like find a little bit of home? If just I'm, somewhere? He, if, I'm, if I'm asshole Nick Fury... Maybe I say, uh, yeah, yeah, he disappeared. Okay, I got snapped. That's not necessarily my problem. And yes, I then did kind of uh, abscond from my responsibilities by going to space to work for, you know, up up in space for the last several years, not working on getting you a home world. But, like, your one job was protect Earth from aliens. Mm. And then the Chitari came and where Thanos, were you? What happened with Thanos? What happened? Yeah, it's a good... I mean, this does definitely bring up one of the issues with when you're 15 years into, like, a cinematic universe is you introduce a law that has been going on behind the scenes for, you know, over a decade, in this case, three decades, and you're going to start being able to be like, well, where were the scrolls when this happened? Like, what was old Talos doing when uh, Thanos showed up? You know, there are some questions here, but I will say... I think Fury did not do a good job. No, he did a bad job. I I mean, clearly he did a terrible job. what was the plan? Like... Finding them a new home where? Like a new planet? Like yeah, a, guess, a, a like, part I, of the world? You can't do that. You I can't think, just give someone someone else's land. Many problems have been caused uh, many, throughout many history. Prob- also, Carol's going to do this. Yeah. Because, Nick, you, how are you getting there? To, right, how are you going Earth. to space? Right. It's, it's not a great plan. I feel like he was doing his best in the moment. But over the last 30 years, him and Carol... I mean, Carol... Don't even get me started. She just breezes off to space whenever she feels like it. Her best friend, you know, her best friend's daughter, who was kind of her surrogate daughter, yeah. she just comes back to Earth and she's like, peace, I'm alive. Also, I'm going back to space to be a space cop. And then nothing about, like, uh, you know, a, a world that's mostly plants and animals that they could live in? Like, you haven't found anything? It, it seems like a pro- Also, you got someone like the High Evolutionary who's just making and abandoning planets all over yeah. the galaxy. So, like... During the snap, Carol was just, like, flying around, putting out like fires in the galaxy and calling back and talking to Natasha like, hey, stuff's bad. Being a peanut butter sandwich. Yeah, stuff's bad all around space as well. You couldn't have also like had a little, your little notes app of like, hey, this planet pretty good. You you bring up a very good point, yeah? Because also, look, I'm not saying they should have displaced the planet where half the population was gone during the blip. Right, I'm not saying an occupied planet. I'm I'm saying saying a planet that's just wilderness. During the blip, which was five years, surely there would have been lots of empty planets if all the universes, half of the universe population was gone. So in that case, they could have maybe found a temporary home or like some kind of planet that maybe needed some help. I feel like they didn't make enough effort, but also Fury was wrong to give Carol this plan because she's just always going off and doing her own thing. I will say if, if Fury, this is kind of like an honorable 
bit of of damage control from Fury because he really could, with some fair authority, blame Carol for all of this. Yes, he's very he's very loyal. Actually, yeah. we'll say that. Um, okay, so we now cut to the aftermath of uh, Gravik's terrorist bombing in Moscow. Hill, we gotta say, appears to be really dead. She appears to be very dead. She, we don't see her transform into a scroll, which is definitely something people were thinking about. I will say, in the comics, you know, she did use a life model decoy. We've seen to, to fake her own death. <laughs> we not, saw Sam. We saw Nick Fury do it in the Winter Soldier. Yeah. So, but I would say, I wrote a piece about it in IGN today. I would say this seems to me more like a classical comic book fridging. I think she is dead. I and think I she think might it's be dead. time for us to believe Kobe Smolder's many farewell interviews that have been released over the last yeah. week and say she probably is dead. If she comes back to life and it was an LMD, I will be happy, but RIP to you. I will say as a as a kind of asterisk to the fridging. Um, I would understand also if you're Kobe Smulders and you're just like, I'm ready to get oh, off. Oh, if I'm that's ready to get the way out. it went down, I would be so happy. Yeah, yeah, I'm ready to get out. It's fine. And she didn't know. <laughs> she said she knew for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Like she'd been told when Secret Invasion first came up, they were like, we're going to kill you. And she was like, okay. Good. And it didn't leak. So I'm happy yeah. for her. But also, I don't necessarily think it was a... It, it falls into a Marvel problem. It's the Gamora problem. It's yeah. arguably like the Black Widow problem that that wasn't a it's also classical not, fridging. It's not a classic fridging in the sense that it's not the motivate. It's not the thing that's motivating Fury. No, but think about this: they introduce Gravik basically almost as like a surrogate son in this episode, mm -hmm. and then they have Gravik kill her to give Nick basically a reason to say like, "I need revenge on this man," even more than just like the bombing. Like, so I feel like. There is an aspect of it to it. But really, I think the most disappointing thing is just it's quite unceremonious. It is I think quite unceremonious. A lot of people <laughs> thought she would play a major role in this, it like she does in both the Secret Invasion comics. But you know what? She's dead now. RIP to her. Nick Fury has <laughs> other problems to solve, and the things are going to get really wild. And who's running the CIA now? Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, Gaia leaves the scene with Gravik. And Fury is uh, swiftly taken into custody by, we think, a Russian FSB or somebody. But actually, no, it's Talos who spirits him away from the scene. We are then on a train uh, from Moscow to Poland. Russian forces are out there looking for Nick Fury. Um, Talos covers for him. Uh, Fury then tells Talos about his early life about how, uh, you know, he used to take the train with his mom and all the kind of racism they, they faced and endured during that time. And he also then pivots from that to telling a story about how his mom had this particular way of asking Nick questions and getting information from him uh, regarding things that Nick wanted to keep to himself. Uh, and Fury is basically telling Talos this because he wants, he believes that Talos is hiding something about the way the scrolls came to Earth. And he was right. He was absolutely right. <laughs> he was right. Uh, uh, and Talos begins by telling the old story, you know, the scrolls held out as long as we could against the Kree, but eventually, you know, we had to disperse across the galaxy and uh, we escaped to Earth. But here's the thing that you don't know. Probably should have told you this 30 years ago, but you yeah. know... Uh... You know how there's like only supposed to be like 200 or something scrolls on it? There's like a million. Yeah. Like literally okay. a million. So time, timeline wise, there is a bit of confusion for me here. Yeah. And I'm sure that one of our many smart listeners will clear it up. And, or maybe you will. But like 
it, I couldn't work out if he was saying that the scrolls had always been there for 30 years or that over the years he had kind of called to them that's, and put out a beacon and during the blip was when a lot of them came to Earth, it That is like. how I perceived yes. it as, uh, you know, Talos basically saying, hey, yes, more, I, I've been, you know, what was I supposed to do, turn them away? You yeah. know, we were hounded across the galaxy and... You know, how does he, he, he basically says, you know, you weren't here. Yeah, you, where were you? So it must have been during that time yeah. that he, that uh, the bulk of the million. <laughs> I mean, think about how much <laughs> it would suck. Like, you are a scroll. Yeah. In this MCU version of the world, you're essentially a cosmic refugee. And all of this terrible shit's been going down. You get a little bit of help, a little bit, minor bit of help from Carol Danvers and Nick Fury. And then, like, 25 in years into your, like, cosmic struggle of being refugees, Thanos turns up and just, like, clicks away half the universe. Yeah. That would be so fucking annoying. It would like, be the very struggle rich. has been consistent for the Skrulls. We also don't know, like, how many were born that's why I was trying You're, to work so out. So it's like, you know, there's that is still a, I mean, the population of Ireland is like over 5 million. So like one fifth of the population of Ireland is aliens and they have, they're living on Earth And they somewhere. can look like anyone. Like yeah. we, there's been quite a lot of conversation in our Discord about like, how do the scroll powers work? Can they just see someone and turn into them, that seems like something they're doing in the MCU. You don't have to have them captured. Yeah. But how many times? So, like, you're saying that these people who essentially have infinite potential to take the guise of any human that they want have just been living here, a million of them, <laughs> for, like, 30 years. Or, or, or at least five years, yeah. potentially 30 years. Is a bad situation, and Nick Fury's rightfully pissed off. I will also say, look, I, I have had many feelings. I, I kind of really do love the original comics, so I really, I would probably rather they were sticking so close. But I will say, this is a great scene. They've talked quite a lot about how the reason they went this direction was Ben Mendelsohn and Samuel L. Jackson together are just really great. Yeah, they're great. They and are the, really and, and you can see it in this moment. Like, this yeah. scene, I understand why they wanted to do a story about these two characters because you feel it and you feel like Nick's betrayal, but you also feel Talos's fury and he is right to be mad. Yeah. Sam, ugh, Nick, he's so good. You just yeah. always want to call him Samuel L. Jackson no matter what he's in. But Nick didn't deliver on that promise, but Talos has kept something from him. There's like a lot of complexity in this scene that I think adds a little bit more weight to why they went this direction. Yeah, they 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 get into a pretty heated argument here once Fury realizes that there's, there's a million scrolls on Earth and... Uh, Talos basically just walks away from Nick at that time. I have a theory about the um, the capturing. I think I think the way it potentially works is if I'm a scroll and I see someone, I can become them immediately. Mm -hmm. But um, we know that scrolls can evade like DNA tests yeah. and stuff. So in order to be able to do that. And now take you have on to, the memories. Yeah. You have to have them in now that special you have machine. To have the person, and that takes a lot of deeper concentration and work to be able to like change yourself at the cellular level, mm. not just on the surface. So that's just a theory. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Especially, we'll get into it, but later on they start to tell us a little bit more about the technology. So yeah. that would make a lot of sense. X-ray vision will be back. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean. Every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. 
Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. And we're back. So uh, Maria Hill's body returns home. Fury meets Hill's uh, mother um, at the airport ceremony. She's heartbroken. She's, of course, very angry. She naturally blames Fury for Maria's death, the details of which she does not even know. Um, And she tells Fury, hey, you need to make this matter. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, Gravik's plan is working. An American has been taken into custody for the Moscow bombing. It's reported that he's part of an organization called Americans Against Russia. I know. This is too funny. It's the most obvious false flag of all time. (laughs) Americans who want to bomb Russia, LLC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are not uh, the American government (laughs) in any way, shape, or form. Like, this is definitely a, a secret terrorist organization not run by aliens. Uh, you know, there's a, a, a little montage here of uh, various uh, politicians and figures across the world, uh, both decrying this cowardly attack um, on the news and also, uh, you know, American politicians denying uh, U.S. involvement uh, in Russia. Guy and Gravik are discussing the successful attack and Gravik is like, yeah, I hoped I kind of hoped that Fury would Mm -hmm. be there just because I wanted to see uh, what he's become, and this is what he's become. He's just old. He's old and washed, and I don't (laughs) even know why. Why? Okay, so can we talk about this? Yeah. I do think everyone is being a bit harsh to Nick Fury. Like, half the universe got blipped, right? But for some reason, everyone just keeps potentially... It's just like him he's vapors he's not even real who is this old ass guy like what i want to know what it is about him it seems ages so yeah it seems very different too like i don't really i guess i have yet to see the difference in nick nick's always been quite a solo i know he's got a limp okay well we'll we'll get to that he does he does have to like sit on a bench and wheeze At a certain point is he sick? Like, episode. is there something going on? It will be interesting to. Man, I do wonder if this is the end of uh, of Nick Fury's involvement in the MCU at the end of this uh, particular series, uh, because they are. Listen, th- there's two ways to go from all of these breadcrumbs mm-hmm. about Nick's age and how washed he is. One is to uh, an amazing rebound. Nick's yeah. Nick's still got it. He re- calls down the thunder one more time, and the other way is. Uh, he's got it. He calls down the thunder one more time, and that is the last of his energy. Yeah. And Nick uh, sails off into the uh, the MCU abyss. Mm. Yeah, I I do think you're basically right. I think those are the two options. Is everyone's saying you can't do this, so he's going to do it, and it will be like, yo, I'm Nick Fury, I'm going to yeah. do it. Or everyone's saying you can't do this, and he kind of struggles and manages to prove them wrong one last time, and then he is kaput. But I can't. I feel like two major characters from that espionage world kind of going in the same series. I don't know if they Mm -hmm. would commit to it, but it will be interesting to see. Gaia and Gravik arrive at the Skrull council meeting. Uh, Gaia is not allowed in. She's not part of the council. Rude. And, I mean, that's just how it works. Although the bodyguards are there, so that's Mm -hmm. weird. Uh, The council members are all those people you just saw on television. Okay, so this is what I was going to say. This is a big, we were right for us. One of the things we were saying is that we feel like... Including the prime minister. Literally, literally, like, this is the thing. Theresa May is a scrawl, ladies and gentlemen. Well, that's believable. But they, they basically say, like... 
this is not going to be the heroes right. who are replaced by scrolls. That was our big theory. You're going to get that more 2022 secret invasion where the, what the scrolls have done well is they have infiltrated every level of government. Now, that has always been a part of the scrolls' plan, but here it seems like that is more of the focus than the heroes. Though we do get, Gravik does a great little illusion in this meeting where he kind of says, they go, oh, what if the Avengers came back? And he goes, don't you think I thought of that? Yeah. So I think that is like a tease of what could happen. But I think this is our scroll power play. We have like the leader of NATO, the U UK prime minister. Like we have all these different people in these huge political places of power who are essentially running the world and they are scrolls. Now, uh, they are, the scroll council is, is, uh, mainly alarmed at Gravik's attack. Uh, they're mad at him for going rogue. Gravik uh, considers the council sellouts. He is mad at Fury, of course, for not keeping his word. He wants war. And he thinks that unlike the Kree-Skrull war, this time they're going to win because humans are already destroying themselves anyway, which, fair point. Uh, and don't worry about the Avengers, as Rosie noted. They're broken up. And if they somehow get back together... I have a solution, and it's probably Super Scrolls. It's, it's we Super basically Scrolls. get a yeah, confirmation yeah. later that Super Scrolls will get to that, but another re we were right yeah. for us, ring the bell. The council aligns behind Gravik, despite some objections from the commander of NATO again. Uh, Gravik is then elected as basically a wartime dictator of the Scroll, the nascent Scroll. Yeah, they say nation. he's the Scroll general. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the council defects, Gravik lets her go. Uh, she calls Talos and lets him know what's going on. And Talos is like, okay, set up a meeting with Gravik. Uh, we go to New Skrullos where everybody is celebrating Gravik's attack. Gaia sneaks into a secure part of the base. And she sees, uh, she gets into like a laboratory where she sees a lot of equipment that Gravik is using for whatever it is that mm -hmm. his plan is. Some unknown experiment. We go to D.C., where uh, James <laughs> Rhodey Rhodes has to answer to various European allies regarding Nick and Maria's involvement in this terrorist attack. He is clearly concerned about what they were doing over there off the books, but stonewalls everybody. And on the way out of the meeting, he gets a call from Fury uh, and they set up a meeting of their own. How annoyed would you be if you were this? If you, if Rhodey's a scroll, hypothetically, and I do think that the meeting could arguably, arguably lean into that theory. How pissed would you be that you had to be there, like defending Nick Fury, and you're just like, oh my god, this fucking guy! Like he didn't find us a homeworld, and now I'm here, and I have to solve this problem because I have to stay in character, and I can't cause like a Russian-American war yet. Don't you think that should be? Like, if the Skrulls wanted to pivot to, like, mainstream society, improv theater and, like, <laughs> acting lessons, like the Skrull method. I it's like, not just yeah, about, yeah, yeah. it's not just about morphing into the person. It's about becoming, becoming the, the person. person. No, I agree with you. It's like the world where it's like true blood, but for scrolls instead yeah. of vampires. Like, scrolls exist. Here's yeah. how we live with them. Yeah. You have like scroll late night show hosts. Uh, They're just their own guests. <laughs> <laughs> Later at a local restaurant, Rhodey and Nick meet. Rhodey is very mad. He says that he's very close to handing Nick to the Russians, which I kind of believe, actually. Fury then asks Rhodey, uh, if he knows that his security detail could potentially be spies. What if your security detail are spies? Have you what thought about this? What if they're Skrulls, bro? Yeah, what if they're Skrulls? And Rhodey uh, surprises Nick by saying, guess what? I know about the Skrulls. I've known for 15 years. I had a briefing 
15 years ago basically saying, hey, there's this population of shape-shifting aliens on Earth, and just in case they get any kind of ideas, we need to have a plan about what to do. So that means he knew from the beginning of the MCU. From the beginning of the MCU. That's a very specific timeline. So just before the formation of the Avengers, he knew. Uh, Rhodey says, by the way... We should call the Avengers. Wouldn't if that re- make sense? Yeah. The, the, if you're, what you're saying is there's a ongoing invasion of Earth by shape-shifting aliens, then we should call the Avengers, and Fury's like, no, 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 no. Too loud. Too loud. Just you and I will handle this. Seems like a bad idea. We've already lost this, Maria. I believe, this is, I believe this is called a narrative conceit. <laughs> They're like, oh, the Avengers, we don't have it. What's, yeah. Who's the Avengers team right, right. now? Contractually, we don't have them, them right, right now. now. So uh, help a brother out. Rhodey hears Fury <laughs> out, but he basically is like, listen, he joins the your washed, your washed crowd. crowd. <laughs> He's like, listen, uh, you are washed, you're ironed and pressed and folded, you're in the drawer, you can't You can't handle this, you already just got done telling me about how this is like an existential threat and it's a really big problem, and now you're saying like, hey, just you and me will handle this very quietly? No. You're crazy, and on top of that, you're fired. I am firing you, I'm, no one is telling me to fire you, I am saying you are fine. Okay, so let's talk about this. I think it is I think it's a whole I think it's a whole scene for the benefit of Rhodey's security who probably are scrolls. Yeah, I wanna know because this is what this is where I was trying to work out. So Nick's been on the space station at Sabre. Yeah. So he works for the government, but Rhodey didn't know what he was doing, even though the government runs Sabre. Then he comes to Russia and Rhodey knows about it. So I was kind of like, how do they even fire him? And also, like, what is the... I want to know how Fury feels about Sabre post-Shield being Nazis. There's a lot of questions I have, so I like your read. This scene didn't necessarily fit into the narrative as I saw it and made me have a lot of questions. So I like your read that Rhodey fired him because Rhodey saw a truth in this idea that maybe his his spies were scrolls. I think, you know, listen, I might be wrong about this. I'm cl- clearly wrong about a lot of things a lot of the time. But I I think I that like this that. was I think that this was for the benefit of any scrolls that might be watching. Yeah. Also good line here where Rhodey's like, "You're out." Yeah. And he's like, "I'm Nick Fury. Even when I'm out, I'm in." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah." That's that. He's not washed. He's going to show you. So one of Rhodey's security guys then puts his hand on Nick's shoulder to Big escort mistake. him out of the restaurant. Nick, like, does some John Wick shit and breaks a guy's wrist, uh, which I didn't think was necessary, and then takes the Seen gun washed. out and, like, yeah, takes the magazine out, pops the round out of the chamber, and is just like, yeah, I'm fucking Nick Fury. I'm bad. And then he goes outside, walks around the corner. And he's like, and, <gasps> and <laughs> sit on a park bench like, <gasps> Yeah. And uh, looking all of whatever it is that his age is. Um, we go uh, back to Moscow where Sonia arrives at a butcher shop that's secretly some FSB interrogation facility. Um, the American suspect that was caught at the uh, at Gravik's attack is there. He's chained to a chair. He's not talking uh, to his Russian interrogators, probably because he's a Skrull and they can punch him as hard as they want and the Skrull can't feel it because he's really strong. Uh, and Sonia's like, "Hey, uh, let me take a let me let me take a, a a turn with him alone. Everybody out of the room." And yeah. for some reason, the Russians are like, "Okay." I sure. think she scares them. I will say, I just love Olivia Coleman in this role so much. She's so, she's good. so creepy. Like she yeah. walks in and she's like, 
He's like, the door was locked. And she's like, so what does that tell you about me and locks? Yeah. And he was like, uh, okay. And then she's like, above your pay grade. So everyone just starts listening to her because she's like a, a evil Mary Poppins. Yeah, there is something really, really wonderful about her performance where it's this, to your point, it's this contrast of this kind of sunny Mary Poppins-ish demeanor with doing some of the most horrific things. Yeah, she is about to commit like the most violent episode we've seen in the MCU yet. So uh, the suspect is, of course, a scroll. Then we cut away from uh, what is about to be a very violent interrogation to go to New Scrollos, where Gaia is hacking into an Apple IIe <laughs> from, like, 1985 with the green monitor and everything, and she discovers what Gravik is up to. Let's talk about it. It's, uh, it is a, a database of genetic information about various individuals, uh, mainly aliens, but not all aliens. They include Groot. Our friend Groot, Colobsidian, uh, formerly uh, in the in the uh, employ of Thanos, lost his hand in the, that famous battle in Infinity War. Uh, a a Jotunheim frost beast, and the formula apparently for Extremis. Okay, so let's talk about it. We talked about the Super Scroll. We yeah. said we thought the Scrolls were probably making Super Scrolls and had maybe been doing some kind of Super Scroll stuff already, yeah. which is why someone like Gravit could just switch between people yeah. in a, in a way we hadn't seen. So. In the comic books, the Fantastic Four, the, there is a Super Scroll. Yeah. The Super Scroll is imbued with the powers of the Fantastic Four, and that makes him the most powerful being, you know, in this particular arc, because obviously there's many powerful beings in, yeah. in the Marvel Universe. I think that, think about the four. Strength, yeah. Cull Obsidian instead of the Thing. Stretch, Groot instead of Mr. Fantastic. And we did see that in the trailer, like his... When we see Gravik in one of the trailers, he yeah, has group powers, but yeah. it looked like Fantastic Four fire powers. In, ice instead of fire. Yeah. Or extremists as fire or something oh, like yeah. that. I don't, ice and fire. Yeah. Oh, yeah maybe. I, I, and I don't know if the Frost Beasts have invisibility powers, but you could potentially see that as the, the uh, invisible woman. I just feel like they have found sure. themselves a way to get out of the... Fantastic Four of it all. Yeah, it's it's very very interesting. Gravit catches her and she covers it really well by saying, "I was just uh, checking up on Beto. You yeah, know, our friend, uh, our friend Beto. Uh, I think he's ready for some you know bigger responsibilities and missions." And Gravit buys it. Uh, we go back to Sonia and cool. her method of scroll interrogation involves boiling the scrolls' blood in their body with some sort of formula. Uh, also cutting off the finger with a pair of pliers. Which yes, is- which I have to say, this was an incredibly smart and simple way of testing if somebody is a scroll, and I believe we will see it. We will see it again. Many times again, because that was, she just chopped off a finger, boom, the finger turned into a scroll. Horrifying, but very effective. Um, she wants to know the location of New Scrollos, and she wants to know where Gravik is, what he's up to, what he's planning. He tells her that Gravik is working on some kind of machine to make Scrolls stronger. Bom, bom, bom. Okay, who's doing the science, she asks, because there's no way Gravik knows enough about science for this stuff. It is apparently someone named Dalton, Dr. Rosa Dalton, we, uh, we, soon learn. Uh, but before things can go any further than this, Gravik's uh, forces arrive and uh, Gravik is there with them and they are there to get their fellow out of this interrogation center and just as Sonya expected because when she came in, she was like, Wait, where's mm-hmm. the back door out of this place? The back door turns out to be a tunnel. She goes down in it 
and escapes just as Gravik and his folks burst in the room. Uh, the scroll insists to Gravik that he didn't give up any information. I didn't tell him anything. I just told him lies. Uh, but, and you knew that to have a real villain, you had to have Gravik do this. Uh, on the drive back to New Skrullis, Gravik just has the scroll shot and then dumped in the woods. Okay, let's talk about this because... So there's just a scroll body in the woods? Well, not just that. I mean, <laughs> that is a big mistake. But also, we see what the scroll tells... Olivia Coleman's character, Sonia. Yeah. And he tells her about the science. He does not tell her where New Skrullos is. He does. But the reason that Gravik shoots him, or the reason he gives, is when they get there, New Skrullos is like being raided. There's there's cops. You can yeah. see the army. So who is the snitch? Like, did Gaia tell him? Did Talos? I think that is gonna be there is a mole, but that actually wasn't the information that the scroll gave away. But he is dead. RIP to that. Who scroll. it is. Yeah. Beto. Oh, they did just let him in quite easily. Yeah, it was it was kind of like a Joker Dark Knight situation. Check the pulse. Like he oh, just walked in and said, hey. Yeah. I wonder if it is Beto. Um, later, we catch up with Nick. He's now got his breath. Most shocking moment of the show. Really, <laughs> truly shocking moment, which I need to talk about it. Like Nick walks up to a beautiful mid-century modern Ooh, I want to live in that house. Beautiful. Uh, he just lets himself in. Uh, and it's his it's his wife's house. It's his house. It's Nick's house. Okay, so where he lives with his wife. So they kept that a secret. And I just so she's like, just cooking and she's like, chilling. Nick, put your wedding put your ring on. Wedding ring on, bro. What do you think this is? I haven't seen you in years. He didn't take his shoes off when she was like, she was like, what did you forget something? I was like, yeah, to take off those fucking shoes that have been stomping around Russia. But no, it was his wedding ring. Okay, let's talk about this. Is has Nick actually? been on the spaceship this whole time or is part of the reason that people haven't been seeing him because he's living this double life where he has this wife who he keeps a secret. Because that seems connected to me. Surely yeah, if he'd I, been up there for five years and was just she, blanking everyone, she would have been pissed. That's where my mind went as well because there's, yeah, obviously if you get involved with Nick Fury, then you understand something about his life and there's going to be huge chunks of time that, are going to be unaccounted for, and he's going to be a very busy guy. That said, she seems absolutely, like, unperturbed that Nick has been gone for potentially, like, five, six, seven years. Yeah, I think she's, like, cooking him dinner. Like, yeah. she's ready to see him. So I wonder if there's some kind of scroll technology or something that was created in Sabre that allows him to go between the two without Rhodey knowing. Because Rhodey knew when he went to Russia. That is the thing, yeah. But like, is, how, how does, does he, he keep, do it? How does he keep her secret, I think, is... Great question. So we wondered, you know, why Talos and the other Skrulls seem so devoted to Nick. And <laughs> Nick having a Skrull wife, I think, really goes a long way to explaining Yes, because, because there's that, also that moment where, in the, in the flashback scene where Nick touches heads mm -hmm. with one of the Skrulls, and there's this, it, it, you know, the, what I took from that was, wow, Nick really understands their cultural... Mm -hmm you know, scroll culture in a way that intimately, like he yeah. understands it, the, the gestures and the things that you do to build trust with the scroll. Uh, I mean, Nick having a scroll wife is wild. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. And I think you do a great job there to explain because we see, they show us before he walks in that she is a scroll and then she Beto, transforms. Beto is Nick's son. <laughs> well, I, I do think there's an argument of like, is Gravik Nick's son? 
even if it's just adoptive son. Right, but right. it would be interesting if Beta was like his real son. Oh, and then we would get Nick Fury Jr., which is such a huge part which of the Which is a comics. huge part of the comics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and also because like they just made Nick Fury Jr. become the main Nick Fury in the Marvel comics. So actually, good point. But we so we see One of that our she's classic Nepo babies. Of classic the Nepo baby. <laughs> so he just is Nick Fury now. Yeah, yeah. But like, so we see her as a scroll, and I think they want us to end this episode asking the question like, does Nick know? But I think you make the great he knows. answer that he does know. And the reason she transformed back is just because that's what she felt comfortable in in that moment. Yeah. And he knows she's a scroll, and that's why he has that closeness to the scrolls. That's why Talos and everyone trusts him. But he's obviously been keeping his wife a secret for a long time. And if, as Super Producer Saul pointed out, she was the woman who bought him Gravik, she was potentially that scroll. there is also a chance that she might be Gravik's mother or yeah. he might have that extra connection to Gravik. Very shocking beginning, shocking ending. They're definitely I going agree. for the cliffhangers in this season. Um, did you ever, did you get any inkling that maybe like Soren is alive? I do feel like this episode. I, I they kept being like Soren's dead, my wife's dead, Gravik killed her. I feel like Soren might be a part of Gravik's group or something. I didn't feel like I, I, I feel like they're bringing it up too much. Maria Hill gets like one mention to the point where I got the uh, feeling like she must be there's a, potentially she's in very very deep cover because honestly if you want to be like Soren's dead and you don't have the actress, put somebody in the scroll head exactly. And just also shoot him from behind, Soren getting is, murked by Gravik. Soren is so good at being in deep cover that the whole of Far From Home she is Maria Hill. Yeah, you know. So I think that's a really good point. And I wonder if that's going to come up again because, like, Maria Hill dies. We see it. We see it's confirmed. Sorry to her mom. It's she's being sent <laughs> off. But like, the funny thing is, then later when like Rhodey brings it up to Nick, Nick just like brushes it off, and she yeah, barely gets a mention. It it's not even a thing. But Soren, it keeps coming up. So yeah. either that's going to make Talos have a violent reaction and revenge against. Gravic, or I think it will potentially be revealed. I will that say she's that not dead. I will say that Talos seemed truly grieved. He believes it. If it's if I don't right. Think so he... there's the so it would be a it would be a secret thing that Nick and Soren had planned. Yeah, or Soren and Gaia together, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, um, very interesting. Yeah, four, four episodes left. What? do you need to see in the next episode, which is like, we hit that halfway mark. Like, what are you hoping to see? Well, I mean, first of all, a million scrolls. There's got to be some kind of, you're either setting up a much larger conflict in the future, like mm -hmm, this, we get mm -hmm. past whatever this is. This uh, yeah, scroll Secret Wars is more of a secret invasion yeah, like the get, comics or we something. We get past this scroll invasion crisis, but there's something else, or there is a framework towards a larger piece because like a million scrolls. You can't write that out in six episodes. Yeah, you're not <laughs> killing them all, right? Please. And you're not. There's no physical way to eject them all from the planet. So how are they sticking around? I'm I'm looking to see how they build a bridge towards Skrulls being part of the population of Earth going forward. And I think I'm also, you know, I'm wondering, 
I'm wondering, I truly am wondering if this is the end of Nick mm. in the MCU going forward. What about you? I hope if it's the end of Nick, it's not the end in a death sense. They recently just had Nick Fury like walk into a portal and like leave the Marvel Comics yeah. universe. And then his son's like, hey, I'm Nick Fury. I just look like my dad now. I I hope, <laughs> I hope that if... He does, if this is the end, I hope it's a retirement. Mm -hmm. I hope he gets to retire happily with his wife. For the third episode, look, I don't think they're going to do a whole bottle episode because we only have six episodes. But I would love to see a little bit of that love story between him and his wife. Same. I want to know more about that. I don't want them to hold that over us like a, does he know, does he not know? I want to just get to know this woman that they've introduced. And I really want her to survive the six episodes. I think that we are, to that end, it strikes me that, in my mind, the reason that Nick was tapped for Saber wasn't just like he's a great spy, et cetera. It's that, uh, well, no one has more close connections with the alien yeah, community exactly, right, than Nick exactly. Fury. And I also think that we're going to discover, you know, we're going to discover that Saber isn't just a uh, American government run program. It's probably run in It always conjunction. felt like it was partially... It's going to be like Men scrolls. in Black, yeah. where it's like there's a bunch Man, of alien cool. interests that are being represented in this particular agency. I would love to see that. Up next, our interview with Star Wars Jedi Survivor writer Danny Homan. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Pride is all about queer joy, celebrating how far we've come, and fighting to make things better. It's also a little bit about outfits. The Crooked Store's Pride Collection has everything you need to celebrate and spread the word with new fuck bands merch, criminalized straight tees, and our Leave Trans Kids Alone You Absolute Freaks collection. Pick up a piece and hit the streets with a message. Head to crooked.com slash store to shop. Welcome to The Hive Mind, where we dive into a topic with the help of expert guests. Today, we welcome Danny Homan, one of the writers behind the brilliant Star Wars video game, Star Wars Jedi Survivor. Danny, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So as, as lead writer on uh, Star Wars Jedi Survivor, what, is, uh, what does that entail? Mm -hmm. How does that work? How does your role work? Oh, wow. It's so much. I mean, I think one of the things... Uh, is games and the way you tell stories starts with cinematics and goes all the way down to like data bank entries and everything in between. So there's just so much to do. There's um, gameplay scripts. There's uh, everyone who talks in the cantina, just an incredible amount of ways to tell stories. And so I oversee a writing team and I work with our narrative director. Um, so I get to do the fun things like go on our performance capture shoots and work with the actors and our director. And then I'm also in the trenches writing uh, Turgle conversations and uh, <laughs> just making sure that everything is engaging and fun and interesting for our fans. And as like, what was kind of your journey to video game writing? Because I feel like I'm really, we, you know, we both get to do podcasts. Jason writes TV. I get to write comic books and writing video I, games goes with that. 
I did write NBA. I'm one of the writers of NBA 2K18. So Jason also writes video games. Nice. I I feel like it's in it's in one of those scope of like dream jobs. So what was kind of your journey to becoming a video game writer? It's a bit of a, a weird one. Um, you know, when I, I was, I grew up in like the Super Nintendo era. So like some of the first games that really hit me were like Chrono Trigger or Final mm. Fantasy 4 or 6. And those were games that, whose stories just like kind of changed how I viewed like the medium and like what you could do. Just there's characters from Final Fantasy 4 that I still kind of tear up <laughs> over. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I had this weird um, thought that what I would do is in my 20s, I would become a, a fantasy novelist and then Maybe later in my career, once I was established, I'd see if I could try to get into video games because, you know, when I was growing up and when I went to college, game writer was like not a like an advertised profession. And that's, you know, a lot of stories are written by designers or by creative directors. Um, professions really only become uh, mature in the last, say, 10 years. So I tried to be a novelist. I completely failed at that. Uh, wrote some very nice books that uh, I'm told are good, but uh, no one wanted to buy. And so um, <laughs> I went to Japan uh, to buy myself a little bit of time. Uh, I had a novelist dream job teaching English in Tokyo. But unfortunately, the timing was very unfortunate. This was 2011 when the tsunami hit. Oh. So I, yeah. And so this, you know, I, I dreamed of living in, in Tokyo. Um, my Japanese is pretty decent. So I came back home uh, with a girlfriend at the time. Girlfriend and I promptly broke up. Uh, I was living with my parents. I had no money and no job, which is, you know, uh, winning all around. And um, I, one night I went into like my childhood room. I pulled out uh, our, a box with our old Super Nintendo and I played some of these games that I had loved so much as a child. And I said, well, look, um, you know, when when uh, life doesn't go your way, uh, it's kind of time to take a look and maybe take a pivot. And so I played some games and I said, hey, I'm going to try my hand at game writing. And uh, a few years later, I got my first job, um, got a fellowship at the University of Texas, joined Gearbox Software and worked on a bunch of different franchises, including Borderlands. And then luckily found myself being lead writer of Jedi Survivor, which is totally unreal. Um, Tell us what some of the peculiarities of writing for video games are. I think people you know, have a broad kind of understanding of how writing a book works, how writing a short story works, how, uh, you know, the difference between writing a, a script, a teleplay, and narrative writing. But, but when it comes to writing a video game, uh, tell us how you approach that and what are some of the strange things that only happen in that, in that space? Absolutely. I mean, I, want, I think one of the things that uh, when you start off game writing is you have these aspirations and maybe you're coming from another media, whether that's TV or film or novels or comics. Um, and the first time you sit down to actually write a video game script, something clicks in your mind, which is, I have no control over what the player is going to do. And it's <laughs> terrifying, right? Um, you know, in a way, game writing is a bit more like being like a designer at a theme park. You can incentivize mm. players to interact uh, with various aspects of the story. You can set big silhouettes in the background of a ship you want them to visit, but they might just go uh, into the dirt for two hours or try to jump onto a rock that they think they can get to. And so <laughs> your job as a game writer is is to kind of embrace the various psychologies of, of, of people who play games, whether you're an explorer, whether you just mainline the story. Um, and you try to offer something for everybody, which is incredibly challenging, but also really rewarding because we have so many different ways of telling stories and games that other media and mediums like TV and film just don't have. Mm. We can give you intense lore and background that the player can 
um, delve into. If you have a favorite character in our cantina, like Kof Turgel or Bran, <laughs> um, we can give you tons of backstory and conversations with them. And, and it's really lovely to see how different fans uh, react and engage with our, our stories. Yeah, I'm definitely a uh, two hours in the dirt, riding around, like cooking. Yeah. So I, I've never well, like I pegged you yeah, the moment I saw you. Yeah, it happens every yeah. time. So, okay, so you've you've brought him up a couple of times. Let's talk about it. When you're writing a character like Turgle, do you know, like, do you have a sense that the internet will fall in love with them? Like, Polygon literally Absolutely wrote an article <laughs> called I Would Die to Protect Turgle and Star Wars Jedi Survivor. <laughs> Maddie Myers wrote that, and it's such a great piece, and it sums up how much the internet fell for him. So did you know Turgle was going to become the star? Definitely not. Uh, <laughs> I was fearful of Turgle and the awesome power uh, he wielded. You know, those characters <laughs> are tough. Um, mm -hmm. They're almost like, you know, classic, like, Hanna-Barbera cartoon characters, they've got, you know, Turgle's got this kind of black and white, up and down, like reactive and, and selfish kind of personality that um, can sometimes grate against players if mm. you handle it wrong. But um, our voice actor, I think, really helped Turgle find his inner humanity, frog enemy. I don't know what the <laughs> term would be there, but um, Richard Horitz was really incredible to work with. And I think we found a fun balance between the absurdity of a character like Turgle and then also some moments where you can kind of uh, you know, go beyond the uh, the cartoonish exterior and see some of the heart. I think one of the things I appreciate about Jedi Survivor is the kind of story mode that, uh, you know, gives the player access to a, a very curtailed version of like the story of the, mm -hmm. of the play mechanics. So they can just kind of mainline the story, as you say. Is it, is there anything in this particular game that you're, uh, that you're really proud of, something that the team really nailed and maybe the players may not get to it or may not notice it or may not trigger that uh, particular bit of dialogue, but you guys really feel like it's special. Yeah, so um, I'll say uh, I am the kind of player that once I finish a game, if I finish a game, I'm usually done with the game, um, mm. you know, uh, which there's something shuts off in my mind. I have a sense of completion and I'm not the kind of person who will go and do all the side quests afterwards. Um, so I always have to be very careful that, um, you know, if I'm ready to finish the game, I'm ready to leave the game behind. But that said, um, with our character Kata and with everything that happens in the end of the game and how challenging of a scenario it is to write a, a, a child character, let alone one who has such a traumatic mm. um, series of events as she does, it was really important to us on the team to land that character, mm. to kind of honor the trauma of that character and to really um, not paper over what had happened. And so there's a lot of conversations, whether they be in the cantina, up in Peely's garden, on the Mantis, uh, on various landing pads where you can talk to her and it's not all roses. She's mm -hmm. struggling with some really, so there's some lovely moments, there's some really sad moments, but again, it was just really important to us um, to treat her as a full character, even though she comes in near the end and to really give her the time so that characters could get to know her. And what's it like? We've kind of talked, it's kind of funny because we're talking about the games and the intricacies. How does it feel and how do you approach writing a game that's a challenge in itself, but that is also within this very beloved lore of, of Star Wars? Yeah, it's terrifyingly exciting, right? <laughs> um, never, never imagined I would be writing on a game that's Star Wars canon. And I think... Um, you know, my, my attitude is for a franchise I love so much that I grew up with as a child. Um, the opportunity to add something to that is overweighs all of the terror <laughs> and nervousness uh, that I felt leading up to launch day. And, you know, I think 
there's core aspects that are shared amongst all Star Wars TV and film and novels, and there's kind of chances to do something a little new. And, I, and mm. what I was most excited about uh, with Jedi Survivor is, in the character of Bode, there's a really complex, rich history and set of philosophies and incentives mm. that um, I, I haven't seen as often in Star Wars. And that was an incredible challenge to write, but also ultimately incredibly rewarding. I mean, watching fans react to the end of our game, the discussions on Reddit. I mean, it's just been really, uh, really, really satisfying to see fans engage with, with our story on such a deep level. On your blog, you mentioned one of the aspects that a video game writer has to deal with is writing using mechanics and for mechanics. I remember when we were doing 2K18, it's, you know, the um, the design team would just say, hey, we want to add uh, this thing to the game where uh, the player is an agent now. So <laughs> come up with scenes for, an, you know, a lot of times it's that kind of stuff that drives um, the writing process. What was that like on, on Survivor? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, you know, when I talk to like younger people who want to get into game writing, the first thing I say is, yes, writing is very important. Don't get me wrong. But um, having skills, advocacy skills, uh, mm. the crooked media, advocacy skills in order to reach across the aisle, in order to understand what various groups um, are incentivized by, what they're interested in, what they're not interested in, and being able to kind of advocate uh, for storytelling by demonstrating to like art artists or designers that you you understand what they're what they're going for is so important and you know you feel it in the game when things don't work quite right and when there's mm -hmm. friction between the story and the design mm -hmm. and the art and where they're kind of combating one another and the best moments I think in Survivor and just the best moments in games in general are where you feel like various disciplines have all come together to tell a story and you know at the end of the day like I'm a writer on this game. But the entire team tells a story or doesn't tell a story. And I think um, with the fan reaction, um, we came together in order to, you know, really create a, a special experience for people. Yeah, it really comes across. Mm -hmm. And for you, this is one of those things where you do it every day. It's your passion. You love video games, but obviously it's also a job. So, like, what are some of the games that keep you excited about video games? Like some of the games that you will play even after a long day of writing video games and being totally immersed in that world. Well, I will say that the timing of Zelda coming out was so lovely <laughs> for me because we worked very hard. Uh, uh, as, as game developers and, you know, Zelda is a franchise I have absolutely adored ever since I scraped together the $20 to buy the original Go Gold Cart NES game for my <laughs> brother's friend. And so that coming out in May was such a joy for me because it's such a different experience from mm. Survivor, right? Oof. I mean, it's it's that polar opposite of going every, anywhere you want and seeing the wonderful creative chaos that only Nintendo can kind of um, give fans. So that's been lovely. Um, I've been playing the Plague Tale games, which are oh, on yeah. the yeah. other side. Yeah. They tell really sophisticated, deep, incredible stories with really um, like characters that I, I think are some of the best in video games. Um, you know, Hugo, if you've played uh, mm -hmm. Plague Tale, yeah, yeah. is like one of the most richly drawn child characters I've, I've seen in games. And it uh, brings me a little joy. Uh, there's a scene where he's skipping along after so much trauma and he finds these frogs and starts chasing them. And I just, anytime I'm upset, I just think about Hugo chasing frogs and it puts a smile on my face. I just think being part of the Star Wars universe is a, is a kind of responsibility mm -hmm. all its own. Uh, we was looking through your CV, you know, uh, you worked on Borderlands 3, a game Rosie and I this, absolutely the love. The most fun. Hilarious game. Um, 
but like disconnected from anything outside of its own world. How do you, you know, as you're writing this, how much direction, how much advice, mm-hmm. how many, you know, um, how much guidance do you get from the the larger Star Wars team about the story you're telling? Right, that's a great question. Um, we work with LucasArts uh, often, and uh, they've been really great partners. There's uh, there's a type of partner that responds instantly when you say, hey, I'm writing the opening mission of Jedi Survivor. Uh, it's on Coruscant. We have... Um, <laughs> We have two characters that need to speak Huttese, like when, uh, <laughs> back, a Huttese dictionary. And, um, you know, it's, or, you know, we're exploring the High Republic and we're getting information from them. And, you know, I, I always approach game writing, whether it's on Borderlands or Star Wars as you know, character centric. And this story could live outside of whatever particular mm-hmm. franchise, because if you can, mm. if you don't tell a good story, it doesn't really matter how many lightsabers are hanging out there. But, um, <laughs> And so it's it's really lovely to have a partner like LucasArts um, that, you know, knows all of these different projects going on and they can kind of help us point us into different directions and give us um, different research and different resources that help us kind of gain uh, authenticity. So when Coop and Liz in the opening mission are speaking Hatties, that's that's Hatties. <laughs> I love that. That must be so fun, especially as a fan of Star Wars, to kind of get into those spaces and get those kind of toys to play with. So oh, yeah, absolutely. This is one of those things where it's kind of like, you worked on this game for so long, right? And then you kind of know it inside out, but was there anything about the gameplay when you sat down and played the finished game? Was there anything that kind of surprised you or like an experience that you had playing the game that you weren't expecting? You know, I probably played the game 100, 150 times before <laughs> it came out. <laughs> and, you know... As a developer, you play from like white box, gray box, which is like literally when the level designer is just plopping down geometric shapes uh, <laughs> to get a sense of a level. And um, for so much of game development, you you see like the bare bones of the experience. And, you know, a part of being a game developer uh, is being able to imagine what the finished product will be like. And with that being said, I've shipped a lot of games and it just never feels the same as when it's actually mm-hmm. putting it up on my PlayStation and getting to play it. And, you know... I, I wrote uh, the opening mission, Coruscant, which was an incredibly tricky mission to write for a variety of reasons. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of characters, new and old. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, then you play it and you, Coruscant turned out beautifully. It's, the artist did an incredible job. Um, we teach you so many mechanics in, uh-huh. um, in such a short amount of time. We introduce so many characters to you that you then ultimately, you know, um, lose. And it's, um, it was incredibly challenging and uh I would say ambitious first level and um, just, you know, getting to experience that like unadulterated, like with my controller was just so lovely. Um, You also mentioned on your blog uh, the issue of of interacting and trying to uh, predict player choice. And this is another thing from 2K18, you know, (laughs) when their dialogue menu comes up, you have to figure out, you know, what happens no matter what a player chooses to do or how they choose to respond take us through that process and how do you keep how do you keep the energy level high when you know uh you know i speaking for me it after a while you're just like can i just say no can i just say no press triangle for no no (laughs) yeah you know i mean the the ways jedi survivor is designed um i think uh was pretty clever which is that there's natural points in the story where we kind of allow slash um, 
give permission that the player can kind of take the rest of it on their own pace. Mm-hmm. So when you first get to Kobo, you've gone through an absolute roller coaster. And so as, as developers, um, we feel and we think the players will feel that they need a bit of a rest, a little mm-hmm. bit of a break, and not just a break on the storytelling side, not just a, a moment of catharsis and rest. Kobo is beautiful, whereas Coruscant is kind of intimidating. Um, but then on the design side, we open up the game and we let uh, players kind of explore on their leisure. And, and you know, you have to predict as a game writer um, all of the possible iterations of experience. And it's why game writing can be pretty tricky to actually pull off is there's various conditions. If you've talked to one character, not another, if you've done one thing. And so our scripts become quite long and our voice actors, we always apologize to because they have to do 14 versions of uh, a small little quest um, just to anticipate all of the possible experiences that a player could have had. Is there a moment now that the game has been out there that you feel particularly proud of writing, like a character beat or a line or something that's really spoken to people in a way you weren't expecting? This one is uh, very fortunately easy for me to answer. It's um, the moment where you come across Kata and you hear her song on mm. Tantalor. Um, I wrote the song, which was really fun. Wow. Um, I've, uh, been, uh, I've, um, I've been playing piano and guitar since I was a little kid. I had aspirations at one point to be a musician, but my voice is average at best, so <laughs> I put that aside. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, the feedback that we've gotten from fans on that song has um, been probably the highlight of my career because, again, what a challenging character mm-hmm. who's been through so much. And the song almost didn't make it into the game. Wow. Um, we were really busy in that last year. We were doing lots of voiceover sessions. We were, um, you know, finalizing the levels and making sure that everything worked well. Um, but leading up to finding uh, Kata, we just felt like there was something missing. We needed to give her something that kind of harkened back to her childhood, something that she would kind of um, be able to hold as a memento of her mother. And um, the song kind of came out of that that desire to give her something that it's a tragic sounding song it's a you know it's it's kind of a lullaby it's it's about um someone being gone and 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 hoping that you'll find them again and uh sometimes uh, things just work out and in this particular case uh the 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 way fans have talked about that song and the experience and how it made them see kata with a new light has been just like totally rewarding for me do people expect you to be good at games now <laughs> <laughs> I think they do. I think which which is interesting because like developers come in all <laughs> shapes and sizes, <laughs> and some of us are really great. Uh, some of us are you know combat junkies. Some of us are explorers. I'm kind of middle of the road. I'm, I I played Elden Ring and I loved it. It was incredibly difficult for me. Um, <laughs> I usually, you know, um, and it's it's kind of funny. You get better the more you play, um, certainly. But um, you know, I difficulty is one one lever to pull. Um, in, in game development, and there's so many other ways to kind of um, excite and entertain players. So, you know, it's an aspect of, of a game, but um, there's there's so many other lovely things that people can experience. So, you know, if you're playing on story mode, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I play in story mode. I love it. Like, I feel like a Jedi. I feel powerful. Um, I don't have to restart a combat 20 times, but hey, that's me. I'm glad <laughs> that you know, Jedi Master. <laughs> For uh, for the masochists out there, and then there's um, you know all the other difficulty levels for for me and other people. Yeah, I had to play it on the Padawan mode for that first boss. I, it was so hard. So she I was so hard to beat. I was like, I "Burp, I'm going back down." So if you 
If you are trying to impress someone with your gaming prowess, like what's your go-to game that you feel really comfortable kind of playing and, and showing off with, or just like that you enjoy with playing with friends? I got really good at Towerfall. I don't know if you all oh, played yeah. that. Um, it was an indie game that came out many, many years ago. Uh, and uh, in my Gearbox days, we'd go down to a bar, a, a gaming bar afterwards. We'd have a, a drink and play for an hour. And that's probably like the closest to competitive, uh, a competitive game that I've ever played and actually excelled at. I love that. Um, it really seems like, you know, to crib a phrase, games are having a moment. <laughs> Yeah, in terms of their story, people are really starting to appreciate the fact that you can tell a compelling game through story now. You know, the Last of Us adaptation at HBO is a great example. The uh, God of War franchise is incredible and emotionally hard hitting. Um, as a person in this industry, what does it feel like to see people start to become aware of the fact that this is not just a medium uh, for, you know, getting your uh, hyper-violent, weird uh, kicks on the internet, it can also be a place to get a really meaty, good, emotionally impactful story. Yeah, it's, you know, I understand it, but it's always a little shocking to me that, like, you know, uh, so, you know, 2023, folks, like, mm -hmm. yeah, gosh, yeah, I could name 100 games that are so compelling and give you an experience that uh, you can't get anywhere else, you know, uh, whether that be like Papers, Please, or yeah, like incredible game. Jedi Survivor, Last of Us, I mean, or Celeste. Like, mm -hmm. The thing about games that I, I find so fascinating that I, I always advocate people to at least try, um, and I think, you know, people are turned off because they think a game is marked by difficulty, and mm -hmm. it's not. There's a game called Florence, which is about falling in love. Celeste is about mental health. Jedi survivors out there, They're, the the types of experiences you can you can have in games are um, so rich and varied. I think you know for this particular moment, one of the things that games have to do that a lot of other mediums don't is there's not a lot of hiding when you're world building in a game, mm. right? Um, players can kind of go everywhere, and so you have to build the world in an authentic way where things fit and um, they're compelling. And, you know, when you're in other mediums, sometimes you can kind of say, take some shortcuts or you can, you know, that, that'll be an implied thing, but in games implied isn't, isn't kind of the same. You don't have the same tool set <laughs> mm -hmm. for that. So when you have a game like last of us or what have you, it's the world is richly thought out because you've had an army of 300 people mm -hmm. of various disciplines, all working together to, to build a world. And that's, that's very different from a screenplay that originates from one or two people or, or what have you. Yeah. I love that you kind of brought up this idea of difficulty, not being the, the peak of what makes a game great. You know, something that we always say in comics and we talk about a lot here is like comics are for everyone is there's this kind of accessible space and there's a comic for everyone. It feels like as someone who's been playing games my whole life, I love games like Celeste, you mentioned Teacup, Stardew Valley. Like I love that as much as I love playing Diablo 4, which me and Jason have been playing too yeah, much. Yeah. But like, what would you say to someone who's listening to this podcast, who listens to it because they love prestige TV or they love comic books, but they've never found that game that's right for them like what do you want to say to someone who wants to start gaming like how do you encourage a new gamer to kind of take that first step yeah that's a great question i mean you know um i have so many uh friends who said oh i gave up gaming when i was 10 or when i went to college and i haven't played for 20 years and um i i you know i i've followed the indie scene for so long that i have an armada of recommendations <laughs> based on the person themselves but i think you know um 
games uh, games have reached this point now where um, difficulty is no longer as important. Where, where the tools developers have to create different experiences within the same game are so mm. robust that um, we can create games for people who are blind. We can create games for people who have never played a game before, and you know, um, those tools are like wonderful because they allow so many different types of people to, to have an experience. And that's, that's different from, you know, we, we have movies and subtitles and, and what have you, but it's just not the same as being mm-hmm. on the sticks and being able to kind of experience a game. The other thing I would say, which I think is different from a lot of the linear media is games are incredibly empowering, right? They're mm-hmm. empowering on the storytelling level because, um, you, you are a participant or the protagonist of a story and the game is not just testing you it's also playing with you and it's helping you learn and it's seeing you know um if you're up to a challenge and seeing mm. what you observe and so there's just so many different types of experiences in a game that you don't really get when you're watching a movie well dan the game is so fun yeah it's amazing it's really great and thanks so much for joining us again yeah thank you this was lovely thanks for the invite i had a yeah. great time Thanks, Danny. Up next, Nerd Out. In today's Nerd Out, where you tell us what you love and why, a theory you're excited to share, or ask us a quick question that we can answer, Anthony pitches us our very first secret invasion theory. Okay. (laughs) I love this. This is like a really big one. Okay. Hey, guys. I feel like Nick Fury is a scroll. Hear me out. I, f- I feel like he is. Honestly, I've I can been believe thinking, it. I've been wondering if Nick Fury hasn't always been a scroll. I was wondering that too. Could that work? Like, is there a way that that works? Like from with day what we one, know? like even pre-Captain Marvel, yes. like could that be it? I would love to see it. So here's what here's Anthony's argument. Fact one: We see in Captain Marvel how scrolls connect in intimate ways, which is by pressing foreheads together, yeah. and we see Fury do this with Talos yes. in their time alone together in the rooftop. Fact two. We consistently have people saying Fury seems different and not the same. Okay, this is actually a good argument. This is a really and good washed, argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no longer three steps ahead of the game. Maybe scroll version of Fury can't quite hack it as well. That would actually be interesting if there's something about replacing Nick, if this is a newer thing, and something to do with this physiology that actually like drains the scroll. Because yeah. Nick has a very strange physiology in the comics and kind of like mm. a, a different timeline than most human lives. Fact three, Maria Hill. Fury's closest confidant and protege speaks to Fury over a game of chess. Well, okay, this is this is going dark, guys. Beware. <laughs> okay. Well, what if Fury was actually killed by the three to four fifty cal bullets that the Winter Soldier put in him during Captain America: <laughs> Winter Soldier? So the life model decoy would not have been real. His death is not faked. Instead, he is replaced by a scroll ally, so as to disrupt the morale and future ops. This may even be a contingency plan by Fury himself. This is actually so I think this is fucking it's good. It's pretty cool. Especially yeah. because that would explain the scroll wife. It would make right. it way less weird. Okay, this yeah. is so fun. He might be the only other human to know the truth. Back to their chess game, Fury says he's doing what he's doing because he owes it to Talos, and Hill says, well, are you sure you don't mean someone else? I wonder if she means he feels like he owes it to the original and authentic Fury <laughs> that the scroll took over from and promised to keep Earth safe at all costs. Fact four. After the events of Winter Soldier, Fury tells Cap if anyone's looking for him, he will be right here 
motioning to his grave where the real Fury is buried. Five. Fury is essentially not seen again post-Age of Ultron, spending most of his time in space with a bunch of other scrolls, as evidenced by the (laughs) after-credit scene of Spider-Man Far From Home. Fact six. Warrior scrolls typically keep their human form on at all times. Anthony goes on to do a disclaimer that all of us with people who love a tinfoil hat theory, right. always do. He says, could be completely wrong, but if I am, my consul- consolation prize is Sonya's probably a scroll. But I have to say, this is such a good theory. I, I, you argued it. And I think if they could pull this off, that would actually make the show have such a massive impact. I also wonder if Gravik's device doesn't solve the problem for scroll Nick Fury of mm. like my body, my Nick Fury my body's body aging. is aging. And then aging. they could make Nick Fury immortal like he is yeah, in the yeah. comics. I wonder if I wonder if that would not be a way to solve the scroll Nick is washed theory, wow. uh, thing. If indeed that is the thing, I do increasingly believe I, that Nick is this, a scroll. This sold me. I love it. <laughs> this is the kind of tin hat theories we yes. love. X ray vision. This to me is more of that out there cosmic style storytelling that I think is connected to Secret Invasion. So thank you, Anthony. I love this theory. If you have theories, passions, or quick questions you want to share, hit us up at xray at crooked.com. Instructions are in the show notes. What if, I mean, what if the flurkin killed Nick? What I know. If he died no, no, no. from the flurkin I do feel infection? like the flurkin and the eye, I feel like they're doing <laughs> he something. He never recovered I from feel the like flurkin. him taking, not, I feel like them purposefully taking off the eye patch, it feels monumental yeah, to me. Yeah, I yeah. need to know why. Did the flurkin give him like 3D scroll seeing vision? Is he a scroll? Did the flurkin kill him? Ah, we need to know. Well, that's it for us. Big thank you to Danny Homan. Rosie, plugs, 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 plugs. Oh, yes, I do have something to plug. This episode will be coming out on Friday. If you happen to listen to it in the morning on Friday and you live in the L.A. area, I will be doing a signing of my Godzilla comic at Universal City Walk. Very fun at T4, really cool comic shop with Nick Marino, who also wrote a Godzilla comic. And we'll just be there in the afternoon, I believe, like four till six, just chilling on City Walk. You can come and see us and get a Godzilla comic signed. X-Ray Vision is taking the 4th of July week off. That means no new episodes on either July 5th or 7th. We'll be back in your podcast feeds on July 12th with some Indiana Jones Dial of Destiny stuff. Whoa. So uh, get your little dusty fedora on and... uh, Get your whips. Get your whips out and get prepared to steal the cultural legacy of numerous cultures around the world. With celebratory John Williams music. Yeah. And in the meantime, if you need X-ray vision in your life while you're on a break, check out the YouTube edition of our recent live show on the 15th anniversary of The Dark Knight. Wasn't that fun? It was that really was so great. much fun. Really delightful. Which included some very fun games, very bad impressions by me, and discussions that are 100% exclusive to YouTube. Five-star ratings, five-star reviews. We need them. We got to have them. You got to give them to us. Here's one from Tracy from Brooklyn. The best! Exclamation point. X-Ray Vision is like a great hang with funny, knowledgeable, thoughtful friends who clue you into the cool stuff. Thank you, Jason and Rosie. Thank Thank you. you! Thank you, Tracy from Brooklyn. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin and executive produced by me, Jason Concepcion. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Video production by Delon Villanueva and Rachel Gajewski. Social media by Awa Okalati and Caroline Dunphy. Thank you to Brian Vasquez for our theme music. See you next time. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. 
because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.